Hi, my, hi everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we've got a, a, a wonderful, crusty speaker, and uh, his talk will be delicious. It, it won't be crummy. It'll be it'll be wonderful. But uh, uh, I'll tell you a little bit. I, I'm, I'm Scott Warner. I'm president and program chair of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And our speaker tonight is Dr. Eric Pallant. I asked him how he pronounced his name. He said Pallant. I said Pallant, but it's not. That's that's too fancy. It's Pallant. And he's the author of the recently released Sourdough Culture, <clears throat> the history of bread making from ancient to modern bakers. He's a typical food person. Uh, he's a serious amateur baker. And when I say he's a typical food person, he's a two-time Fulbright scholar. He's a double award-winning professor and the Christine Scott Nelson Endowed Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Allegheny College in Meadsville, Pennsylvania. He's known for his acknowledged for his skill in, in telling wonderful narratives um, for National Public Radio, CNN, uh, a whole bunch of places, uh, podcasts, bread symposia, and articles for magazines such as Gastronomica, Sierra, and Science. And as I said, that it really that's our typical food person. That a lot of you are like that, and. Uh, and our speakers are typically like him. So he's typical, uh, wonderfully typical. And I will say, uh, I love sourdough bread. Uh, I love it. Um, I've even tried to make it. I was actually had the honor of uh, being able to test recipes for modernist cuisines, a big, huge bread book. And I had to make sourdough. And I think they never wanted me after that, because I couldn't make sourdough. I turned sour on sourdough bread, making it, but not eating it. But anyway, uh, Eric is going to give us the real skinny on, on sourdough, and maybe I'll pick up a point so I don't fail on it again. But anyway, Eric, if you, Dr. P Pallant or Eric, can you please take it away? Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Eric is just fine. Uh, and, and typical food person, meaning I like to eat. I really like to eat. And so that's uh, a big part of how I got into bread in that uh, I, I live in a small town in Northwest Pennsylvania uh, in the heart, the bullseye of the Rust Belt. And when I moved here in 1987, there was no decent bread to buy anywhere. And so I started making my own and have been making it ever since. And there's still no decent bread <laughs> to buy in our poor little town. So um, here's here's my challenge as a as a storyteller is um, I need to cover something between uh, six and ten thousand years of, of of bread history and particularly sourdough history. Um, and I want to do it in uh, forty five or fifty minutes. So you can do the math. It's uh, we should do about a millennium every five minutes or ten minutes or so. So here we go. Um, this is the title of the talk. We'll just adjust some things on my screen. Uh, the history of, of uh, the invisible history. Uh, invisible because sourdough is made up entirely of invisible little microscopic organisms. And so let me start with two definitions. Uh, definition of, of me, just as Scott said it. So again, professor of environmental science and sustainability at Allegheny College and uh, bread. And we can talk about it at the end if you have questions about what's the relationship between sourdough bread and sustainability. 
but we'll talk about that at the end. It's my way of drawing people into uh, more sustainable ways of living, but that's a different lecture than this one. And the definition I'm going to use for bread is, I think, the simplest one, and I think the appeal of bread for me is that it really can be made with just four ingredients. All you need is flour, water, salt, and salt is not really necessary, but if you leave it out, ugh, ugh, you notice it right away. And something to make the, the bread rise, a leavening agent. And um, for 6,000 years, that leavening agent has been a sourdough starter. And for the last 100 or 125 years, it's been a commercial yeast. And I'll talk about how that transition happened and what I think that means. Um, but I want to start with, okay, why bread and why does fresh bread in particular make us hungry? And we're just going to show you two or three or four pictures of breads that I've made. And um, um, it's what, seven o'clock in Chicago. And, and, and I presume many of you have already eaten. And so you should not be feeling hungry in any way. But I'd be curious to know if as you watch these pictures go by, uh, your little mouth is starting to salivate. In, in just an anticipate, there's something about looking at a picture of this Bialy or this freshly made home, right? You can you can hear the crust, you can you can picture the crumb, you can think, I'm not hungry, but if somebody handed me this pizza, I think I I probably would eat it again. And so, what is it about the human experience? That, that makes us recognize that bread is the one thing we smell. It's freshly baking in the oven. And whether we are hungry or not, we think we want to eat some. And, and I think it goes back to sort of prehistory when humans at this stage, sort of pre-civilization, pre-settling down, um, food, of course, is survival. And before for agriculture, we're hunters, we're gatherers, and the object at that time was to go out and kill something. And then we know from sort of primitive, not primitive cultures, but cultures that are still hunters and gatherers, that uh, the object is to eat as much as you possibly can, because you don't know when the next chance at a gazelle is going to come. And so there's no stability, but there is something, this is the only other food I know that creates the reaction that I'm describing, uh, which is that even a vegan or somebody who is filled up to here has had already a meal, smells barbecuing meat, and again, the same reaction. And I think it's a kind of survival um, instinct in humans that the smell of baking meat, whether we like it or not, or fired meat means that ourselves and our community are going to survive, that something good has happened for our little village. Um, and, and here you can see that in all of the history of, of uh, hunting and gathering, it has been this way for 100,000 years. Men go out, they shoot something, they barbecue, they stand around, they drink beer, and then they do nothing else but tell stories for the next week while women are going to do agriculture. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And so the smell of barbecue signals survival. And in the same way, what I'm going to describe is that that smell of baking bread, once we have settled down as a, as a, a human organization, a civilization, and this is now about 10 to 12,000 years ago, and let me just describe the weather for a second. 12,000 years ago, the last ice age has ended. 
the glaciers that have covered the continents and have been up in the mountains are receding. And there is this explosion in the number and quality and quantity of plants that are growing out in the plains. And what we start to figure out is that if we go out and collect those grains, they're there all the time. It's not like catching a gazelle or catching an ibex or catching an antelope. Grains are growing everywhere. And so there's a there's an opportunity to settle down and make this kind of smell, meaning good things are going to happen. So this is the beginning of agriculture. It, it begins really all around the world. Different grains are, are, are preferred, are cultivated by humans in the fertile crescent of the Middle East. So we're talking here, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, and so forth. That's that Fertile Crescent is the home of wheat, which becomes the basis, the staple carbohydrate upon which people in the Middle East are going to survive. But at exactly the same time, um, uh, early civilizations in East Asia have picked a different grain. What is it? It's rice. Um, in, in Northern Europe, it's it's rye and and oats. In the New World, in North America, native peoples are are growing maize or corn in South America, it's potatoes. So there's a basic carbohydrate that's going to be a a, a plant that is going to be planted over and over again is going to become part of a society in, in which that plant is going to mean our survival. And in some ways, the survival of the plant is only going to be because of people that, 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 modern wheat and modern corn and modern rice only survives with the help of people. But the recipe doesn't change really from 10,000 years ago to 6,000 years ago. So you may be eating oatmeal every day today, but you do have the opportunity to to do something else. But for 4,000 years, essentially, if you were eating grains, you put them, you might have banged them with a mortar and pestle and broken them up. So you're not just eating, uh, Eat, eating a, a, a whole grain, but you just soaked it. You might have cooked it, and that that was it. You're eating hot cereal or cold cereal every day for four thousand years. Um, you can you can. It's not hard to imagine, and archaeologists have uh, developed the evidence to demonstrate this is really what's happened. Is that if you mash your grains, and your grains can be wheat or or, or pulses like peas and vetch and oats and emmer and all kinds of things. But if you mash them and you make a sort of a flower and put them uh, out on a very, very hot rock or right onto hot coals, you can make a flatbread like this, which is fantastic. It's delicious. I'm a big fan of fat flatbreads, but we're not yet, uh, we don't have the leavening agent, which, which is what I'm going to use to dis- sort of distinguish what we think of as bread today from, well, cooked porridge. So we're now about 6,000 years ago, and here's the first evidence we're starting to see of the domestication of something we can't see, which is these little microscopic organisms. And those microscopic organisms were surrounded by them. Like wherever you are sitting now, there are yeasts flying around your room. There are bacteria flying around the room. There are little viruses, as we all know now, sort of every place that um, are very hard to keep in one place. And if one of us coughs out a COVID virus, the rest of us are going to get it. So they are everywhere. And so what has happened 
is about 6,000 years ago. Somebody has left the porridge out on top of wheat. And wheat is the key ingredient for making what we think of as bread because of all of the grains. Wheat is the only one with gluten. Uh, now, rye has some gluten. Barley has a little bit of gluten, but wheat is the king of gluten. It is the king of proteins uh, among grains. And that gluten allows a kind of cohesion and stretchiness that uh, can occur if you inflate the bread. And that is what happens when yeast and bacteria start to grow on the wheat that has been left behind in a bowl of porridge. And that bowl of porridge, if left in, say, an Egyptian sunny day, after two days, the yeast and the bacteria in the air in Egypt will land inside there, it will start to bubble. It will effervesce. And if you are like, I don't care, I'm going to cook it anyway, that flour will rise before you cook it and rise again in the bread, in the oven, and, and, and on your coals, on your hot stone. And you will no longer have a flat bread, you'll have a leavened bread. And that invention, we think, takes place around 6,000 years ago. And this is the recipe. It's as simple as this. Flour, water, salt, some magic lop that you have that we call a sourdough culture or a sourdough starter. You mix it together in almost any combination, um, and you will get bread. And so what I want to really talk about today is like what changes from the sort of the dawn of settled civilization. And here we are at 4,000 BCE in the ancient hieroglyphs that we see in the pictures in, um, uh, inside the tombs and around the archeological digs in Egypt until the 1700s and the industrial revolution changes well, everything about what we eat. So that's what I wanna talk about. Put your, uh, have a seat and let's, Go. How do we get from historical sourdough to uh, supermarket bread? All right. The Egyptians, we know, we're pretty sure, right? We don't have positive, there are no written recipes. We have these images of breads that appear to be leavened. We have, um, we know that they're making beer, which is. Uh, because we can capture the yeast that are on the interior of the urns from which they made beer. And that yeast is a species called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is exactly the same species that you used to leaven bread. And so the bubbles in a liquid bread we call beer, and the bubbles in a more solid bread, which is a lot of flour, we call bread. But uh, the reason we don't know for sure that there was Saccharomyces cerevisiae or, or yeast inside Egyptian bread is unlike the scrapings from a beer urn where the yeast could still be alive, uh, bread has gone through a heating process of several hundred degrees, which is enough to have killed any of the yeast that were present. And so we don't really know for sure that that's what was going on. But boy, the evidence is great. You know, they, we have pictures of, of wheat harvests. Uh, we have pictures of grinding wheat into to flour. This is uh, uh, the grinder here is, is, is uh, from the Egyptian museum. We have uh, this image on the, on the right of people kneading bread. There are um, 
enough bread molds, these are these clay cylinders outside the pyramids of Giza, that archaeologists can calculate that if the bread that is inside, there are really 500,000 broken clay molds, meaning that they made the clay molds, poured the batter or dough onto the inside. And when the bread was cooked, it stuck. And any of you who have ever made bread and had it stick to the sides know that uh, the reaction is just, I'm going to take this clay pot and break it and smash it. And so outside of Giza, there are 500,000 broken clay pots from which they can deduce and calculate that there were 10,000 workers who were essentially being fed bread and beer. And uh, that was the fuel used to feed the workers who built the pyramids. Um, so the next, uh, I'm just I'm running through history. I promise I'd go quickly. Following the Egyptians, we have the Greeks. The Greeks were not big bread eaters, except for very upper class uh, Greeks dip problem in, in, in Greece essentially was soil erosion was so great that they couldn't grow enough wheat and they lived on a hardier grain called barley, essentially barley bread, which by all accounts is horrible. It's, it's, it's really dense. Um, but the Romans, the Romans really revive uh, wheat and, and they're going to build an empire based on, 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 on feeding uh everybody they can with wheat. And so this, this article just came out uh, a week ago that the first, the world's oldest sourdough, um, you know, I, I made the BBC last week and uh, for reasons I can't understand it, it's not the lead story, right? There's the January 6th thing and the Ukraine war and the, road, the, the abortion debate. And somehow the fifth story, the fourth story is about sourdough. It should be the other way around, I know. Um, and in fact, Right after this story was posted on BBC, NASA uh, posted its pictures from the uh, from the new telescope, and the story disappeared. But um, I also was in the, that that story, and and this, you know, the, the reporter, the journalist asked me, "Okay, what's the oldest, for sure, recipe that uses sourdough starter?" And and that's Pliny the Elder um, in seventy seven CE writes down essentially that. If you're going to make bread uh, in in Roman times, you could one of the best recipes is to take some of this starter, some of the glob from yesterday, and throw it into today's bread. Let it rise, and before you bake it, remember take out a handful and use it again tomorrow. That is the use of a sourdough culture. And so here we are in the Roman Empire, and this is how we're making bread. And there's so much dependency on wheat in the Roman Empire that uh, every free citizen in Rome receives 75 pounds of wheat a month. All right. And, and you can see here in this, this Roman uh, bas relief on the, on the right, the distribution of bread being given to uh, Roman citizens. It, it was the way, according to Juvenal, whoops. To uh, to pacify, and this juvenile is a philosopher and a sort of a comic who's making fun of uh, uh, of the rulers. Like they're just trying to buy peace by giving out free bread and having enough hippodromes so that people can go out and and, and watch the horse races that uh, 
that part of the population that might be revolutionary, who's who, who are the like most dangerous revolutionaries as young men, you know, teenagers and so forth, uh, late teens, early 20s. If you give them enough pizza and Sunday afternoon football, they're going to be pacified. Uh, is what is what juvenile is is saying, and there's something to that. I mean, I looked it up recently, and just since the year 2000, there have been 17 revolutions raised over the price of bread. You know, around the world, where where that, uh, if you want to keep people uh, happy, you need to make sure food is affordable. Um, I'd love to look at this map of the, the map in yellow is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire here in yellow corresponds almost perfectly to the climate within which wheat will grow. And so in some ways, this is a way of saying that the Roman military extends its, its, its holdings so that the north of Africa supplied all of the wheat during the growing season in the north of Africa, when it was too cold in Europe to supply wheat. And then it flipped again so that the wheat came uh, from Europe in the warmer months in, in, in Europe. Um, it, look at Britain up there in the northwest corner, and you'll see that there's a sort of a line right between Scotland and England. And that line corresponds to Hadrian's Wall. And Hadrian's Wall is, uh, you know, ostensibly, like most historians will say, it was to keep the Scots out. And the Scots are, you know, were fierce warriors. But, but there's a part of me who thinks, you know, like that is the point at which wheat, any farther north, which is to the left of this wall, it's too cold and too damp in Scotland to grow wheat. And so to this day, if you go to Scotland, what are you going to get? You're going to get oatmeal, you're going to get oat scones, you're going to get oats as your basic food. And, and I think this, the Romans were like, ugh, we don't eat oats, right? So I, I like to think of Hadrian's Wall some way as like, this is as far north as we're going to go. The food in Scotland's not worth eating. Scandinavia, Germany, that's all rye territory. Rye has a much better sense of humor with respect to cold and damp than wheat does. And so those are countries that uh, you get denser breads because rye doesn't have nearly the quantity of gluten that allows it to rise the way a wheat bread does. And so you get much heavier breads, denser breads, darker breads uh, in Northern Europe. And that's a function of the geography of where these things grow. They're still sourdough. They're still leavened and treated with the yeast and bacteria that grow in those particular environments. All right, so here's one case where the Romans did not, you know, their, their hippodromes and, and their, their gladiator rings and uh, their delivery of food didn't quite do what it needed to do. It didn't satisfy the people. And so here, the very first miracle ever recorded in the Bible by all four of the disciples is the miracle of the fishes and loaves. And the miracle of the fishes and loaves is Jesus is surrounded by 5,000 people who are hungry and there are only a dozen loaves of bread. And the disciples are saying, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna feed them? We've got to send these people home. He's out there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. We will multiply these. 
And this would have been a parable or a story that the people of the time would have understood because they would have all had a sourdough starter bubbling at home and know that a sourdough starter can be grown and shared and expanded indefinitely. And so this is a story of I can make a dozen loaves or I can make 100,000 loaves with the same sourdough starter. At the Last Supper, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, my body is bread, my blood is wine, two products of fermentation, right? That, that there is a kind of, in this case, we're taking this unknown, unseeable transformation, transubstantiation, if you will, of dough to something more glorious and more beautiful than it was before it was cooked. And likewise, grape juice becomes something sublime once it is fermented. It is wine. And so there's a, there's a choice that Jesus has made here. That Jesus does say, you know, I'm a rock or I'm water or I'm other important things. But here at the very last supper, he's saying, my body is bread. And just as an aside, I like to tell a, a story here about bread that, that bread is... A, a story of life and death and life and death, and that you start with wheat in the field, which is a living organism. You grind those little berries of wheat into a flower, in a sense, killing them. You infect them with a sourdough starter, bringing them back to life, making a dough. You cook that dough, in effect, killing all those bacteria and yeast so that you can eat the bread of life, the staff of life, and you live another day, right? And so, so, so when Jesus says, "I am bread," he, he he's he's telling people that they're they're having that same reaction that I hope you had when I showed you, showed you those initial pictures. That um, I when when Jesus says, "I my my body is bread uh, and my, my my blood is wine," there's a kind of quick olfactory flashback to the home, the hearth, to happiness, to we are going to survive, that there's a kind of fulfillment here that doesn't come in any other way. Um, and so it was not, right? It had to have been, there was no other thing. Jesus's body not just was bread, it was sourdough bread. And um, that wasn't lost on this is something that I can give from my myself to my friend, to my neighbor, to my family, and it will live forever. It has a kind of eternal life. Any of you who have a sourdough starter um, and it's still alive knows that it could have an eternal life. And, and here, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and this is a, a church that's sort of prevalent in, in, in Syria through Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, out into uh, Turkmenistan and so forth, they take this literally that if you look at their original documents and their original doctrine, they say that John the Baptist actually captured the blood and the tears of Jesus on the cross, used that to make a sourdough starter. That sourdough starter was given to the disciples, and those disciples have continued to use the bread, the Eucharist, right? The, the body of, of Jesus Christ really is, according to the Nestorians, the body of Christ. This is living proof that I'm giving to those taking communion um, as, as, as 
a continuation of a 2,000-year-old starter. Now, I haven't gone to northern Syria to document this myself, um, but this is what their uh, liturgy says. But it's not just uh, this magical transformation of dough into bread through the addition of this, this, this mass that we just keep feeding and living day after day is not just in Christianity, right? The best in Islam, the best of all deeds is to, to take care of your Muslim brother, either by paying off his debt or feeding him bread. And anybody who's been to a Shabbat dinner uh, in a Jewish household knows the centerpiece, the thing that is going to be what we've been waiting for to start the meal are two chalots, two chalot that are just beautiful and delicious. All right, this is what's, that's bread culture and till look at the end of the Roman empire. We're now in the year 433, something like that. The Roman Empire moves to Byzantium or to Constantinople. And what we're left with in Western Europe is the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. And things get rough. It, we are back to a kind of hand-to-mouth existence. Can we develop and grow enough food to survive until tomorrow? And that's going to be hit or miss, depending on where you are in the season and the the number of locusts and the amount of crop disease and the number of workers and how hungry everybody is. Um, this is the, 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 well, the false, well, fake news, I think is what we call this. Uh, this is the fake news view of the, of, of the wheat harvest uh, as this big happy event in Europe. And this is the real deal here. Um, you have a Lord of the Manor who is running a whole bunch of serfs uh, essentially is enslaved or, or indentured um, laborers who are giving over almost everything they harvest, either to the Lord of the manor or to the church, uh, just taking home a few grains for themselves. And it's going to be that way for a thousand years. Uh, poverty is, is so intense among serfs that, that, um, you don't have an oven of your own. You don't have the energy or the land to grow the fuel, right? The fuel wood with which to fire an oven. So you take what meager wheat and bread you have. You have your sourdough starter at home. You infect your bread, the woman of the house, then carries the bread to the communal oven to the baker who is employed by the lord of the manor the baker now is a monopoly you pay whatever he says you're gonna pay hope that he's not taking a little bit of bread out of the bottom of your dough before he bakes it um they become right they are the walmart you, they are the big purveyors of of everything you need to stay alive and there's nothing you can do about it likewise the miller the the, the guy who's going to grind, mill your grain into flour also works for the Lord of the Manor, also is a monopoly, right? It is a tough life for a thousand years until we have the first, first inklings of, of uh, sort of industrial, uh, industrial nationalism, industrialization, uh, sort of urban development, I guess I'd call it. And, and here we have what the Romans worried about, which is if the price of bread goes too high. 
People get upset. And once people get upset enough that women are out in the streets, you're in real trouble. And so here we are in the French Revolution with women marching on Versailles, leaving Paris, going through the mud for nine miles to get to Versailles, saying to King Louis, Marie Antoinette, you know, damn it, we need the price of bread to come down to a way, a, a, a level where we can afford it and we can feed our children. There is nothing like the, the sound of a bleeding bleating child who's hungry to drive a woman into the streets to demand a revolution. Uh, which leads to, I, I think, probably the most famous quote of all revolutions, right? Um, Let them eat cake, says Marie Antoinette. The, the story being uh, that, that Marie Antoinette was so wealthy, so ungodly, uh, surrounded by by jewels and furs and the Versailles palace that she just couldn't even imagine people not being able to afford bread. And she said, in, in essence, let them eat cake, though. If you read the French translation, she said, let them eat brioche. And then the truth is it never happened. She never said it. She wouldn't, she would never have said it. She had far more compassion than that. It was a quote attributed to Mary Antoinette 75 years after the revolution to justify the actions of the revolutionaries. Nonetheless, uh, Marie Antoinette met the, well, the same fate of this baguette. This is a revolutionary era baguette slicer and uh, not dissimilar from a head slicer that uh, was used to remove Marie Antoinette and King Louis XIV's uh, heads from their bodies. All right. Um, here comes the beginning of the end, and, and it's Antoine von Leeuwenhoek, a Dutch uh, magnifier, microscope maker, and, and his real ability was to build this microscope thing on the, on the left and, and to be able to see things that nobody had ever, ever seen. And so he, von Leeuwenhoek, took everything he could get his hands on, just hundreds and hundreds of different things, and... and um, put them under his microscope to see what it was that the world was made of, right? At the same time, Galileo is looking at the heavens and discovering like, oh, there's stuff up there we didn't know about. And von Leeuwenhoek is taking his telescope and sort of inverting it and looking um, down, right? And so he looks at uh, white blood cells and till, till, till von Leeuwenhoek blood cells, there were no cells right? Blood was just this red thing that happened when you cut open something that was living. And, and he discovers that there are these little wiggly things inside called white blood cells. And there are red blood cells. And that if you look inside of a beer or, or a glop of dough, there are yeast cells and there are bacteria cells. He doesn't know what they are. There are sperm cells. And I'll let you figure out how he got those onto his microscope slides. But, but before von Leeuwenhoek, th there was like nobody knew any of this stuff existed, right? And so he draws yeast, right? In 1600 something or other, von Leeuwenhoek draws yeast, but it's going to take two, he calls them animalcules. He doesn't know what they are. He doesn't know if they're animals or vegetables or minerals or just compounds, chemical compounds. And it's going to take 200 years and hundreds of experiments and scientists all over Europe trying to figure it out before Louis Pasteur in the late 1860s, 1870s or something figures out that yeast are alive, They're, they belong to biology and not chemistry, right? Previously, they just figured, well, things that bubbled were chemical, but no, 
yeast are alive, and they are responsible for making the carbon dioxide that uh, makes beer effervesce uh, or carbonates or bread rise if it's got leaven to, or gluten to hold it together. And now we're nearly at the end of the run of sourdough. So it started 4,000 BCE, and now we're into the 1700s, and Great Britain is going to, let's, let's travel to Manchester, more or less, and, and the discovery that you could make textiles rather than one thread at a time being made by one woman with a drop spindle, trying to make a single thread and then another single thread and putting those threads together to make a fabric, they could do it by machine. And if you could do it by machine, you could do it by thousands of machines. If you could do it by thousands of machines, um, you could grow like you could grow textiles like nobody's business. And if you could do that with textiles, what couldn't you do that with? Whoops. Right. And so here we have the spinning Jenny on the left and a continuous oven on the right. It's gonna take a couple of hundred years from like the 1750s when the industrial revolution gets going to the 18, I guess it's a hundred years, um, 1850s or 1900 before we're starting to industrialize food production, but we're gonna to have to do it in a hurry because we now have hundreds and thousands of workers in factories and we need to feed them because they're not on farms growing their own food anymore. We're going to have to fuel the workers just like we're fueling the machines that are making the textiles. Okay. And so here comes Pasteur says, this is how you grow yeast. Let's get rid of the bacteria, which are responsible for making bread sour. Blech, look, we don't even like that sour anymore. Let's just go with pure yeast and let's see how fast if we add a whole lot of yeast, now that we know what they are, we can grow them in pure vats of just pure yeast, can we make bread rise really quickly? Because we have to make a lot of bread to feed a lot of workers who are working a lot of textile mills. All right, and so here it is. Um, some of you may have made this science experiment. This is a sourdough starter gone bad and the run is all but over for sourdough as yeast and capitalism and speed and profit sort of take things over. There's one little bump, which I love, which is, that in England, they figured out that <clears throat> why even bother with yeast? We could put here on the left is a bomb, essentially two or three, four feet across. It's sealed. It's cast iron. You put your dough inside that. You have a cylinder of carbon dioxide and you open a valve and the carbon dioxide runs into the dough. It inflates the dough inside just with straight carbon dioxide. There's a stopcock on the bottom. If you look closely, I don't know if you'll be able to see it over here, you, you sort of turn the stopcock, you put your baking pan underneath, the thing burps out a dough and it inflates as soon as the pressure is released. And you can have bread in three hours from start to finish counting baking, All right? So this aerated bread, um, it took a while to sort of uh, manipulate because initially 
just tasted like grass because without that fermentation, it was just raw weed essentially being cooked. But they, they did figure out how to get around that. And so um, the only place that sourdough survives essentially is, is in refugia, in, in, in like really distant, distant places. And most famously, gold miners are supposed to have gone out to San Francisco and and, and the, 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 the legend has it, they kept their starters uh, in little pouches next to their bodies where they, they kept them warm and alive. And if they were in the Klondike uh, up in Alaska, that was how they kept their, their starters from freezing to death. And supposedly over time, the, 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 the miners started to smell like sourdough. Um, because the bacteria and yeast from the sourdough starter must have infected them as well. Nobody ever asked what did the sourdough start to smell like after sleeping with a miner who hadn't taken a bath in two and a half months. Anyway, none of this is true. Um, it was all invented by Jack London of uh, Call of the Wild and, and all that as a kind of myth to make it a, a, appealing to all those poor sods working in boiling hot offices in Philadelphia and New York City and Baltimore and so forth. So he invented like the, anyway, the whole Alaska myth. And the, the truth is, this is what, what people did for food uh, in during the gold rush is they went to the bakery and uh, they bought bread, uh, just like everybody else. Um, so moving along to, to, there are a handful of people still growing sourdough starters, but they are very few and far between. And this, what's going to be called the Chorleywood bread process in the early 1960s developed in England is going to essentially mechanize bread and make it so fast and so inexpensive and so productive that there's no other bread that's going to be on the market. Um, and, and so we now can turn out well, millions and millions of buns to surround millions and millions of burgers. Uh, at sort of astronomically easy ways of doing things. Um, and just here, here's an example of, of, of a, a conventional dough mixer. It's hard to even get a sense of the scale, but, but on the sides, the dough mixer's in the center and on the sides are ice baths um, to keep the dough in the center cool enough because the dough in the center has uh, beaters inside that are moving around at 3000 RPMs, the temperature of the dough just from the friction would reach almost cooking temperatures just from the internal heat of mixing it. And, and so to keep the dough cool enough, there, there are these ice baths, but to also keep the dough from ripping, they would have to add dough conditioners and dough elasticizers and all of these other things that I would argue aren't really food. And, and if you look here, right, yes, it starts with whole wheat flour, which is um, what we started with six and 10,000 years ago, but, but high fructose corn syrup, honey, molasses are all there to feed yeast. And the yeast are growing so fast that we're essentially making aerated bread. You were just inflating it and we're still back to making bread in just two, three, four hours. And so let me try and wrap up a little bit and say, okay, why is sourdough bread coming back? Um, and this is, this is in some ways the rise again of sourdough. Like what, what is it that made us start to think that that bread that was conventional, that was 
well, it tastes like it comes from a, a photocopier, you know, because it's made in essentially the same mindset, uh, isn't worth eating. And so he, here's one of the, the sort of the, the, the fathers of the rebirth of, of bread making, of sourdough bread making, the old fashioned way. And he's, what he's really doing is he's gone back to heirloom grains, to the kinds of wheat that aren't uh, super selected by, by, by agricultural food scientists, but are like, this is what we had 10,000 years ago and 8,000 years ago. And so most of us, not me, because I live in Meadville, Pennsylvania, but most everybody else in the world lives within reach of an artisanal bakery where you can buy real bread again, made from four ingredients. You know, if it's multigrain, it might have eight ingredients, but it doesn't have 40 ingredients. I have counted up to 42 ingredients in a Wonder Bread. And, and so there is this return to what I like to think of as food made from food and, and sourdough being uh, not what commercial yeast is, but but a, a collection of wild bacteria and yeast that can be found any place. Um, we're going back to ancient grains uh, because they have flavors that are analogous to ancient, well, like a tomato is what I always come back to, which is there is no comparison to a tomato bought in the store and an heirloom variety of a tomato or a strawberry, right? That, that comes right from the right from the vine. And so this is a question I've been asking myself, like, why is it that within two months of being held in our rooms and our apartments and our, you know, being locked down in the first big wave of COVID that everybody started making of all things sourdough bread? Like, why did we go to sourdough? What was it that, like, we, we could have picked anything, like we could have worked on our sit-ups, right? We could have taken up knitting. But we went to the thing I believe is ingrained in what it means to be human, which is that smell of bread means we're going to survive, that our culture is going to live another day, that we are going to care for one another, even if it means in the height of COVID, running next door or running to somebody's house and leaving a loaf of warm bread on their stoop and running home where we don't even see them. But it's a way of saying to them, this is what we did 10,000 years ago, and this is still what's going to save us. I don't think it was conscious, but this is just the Eric Pallet hypothesis. And here's just a little bit of politics, which is we can all go to that artisanal bakery, but not everybody can go to the artisanal bakery, right? Which is that the, that loaf of bread in the artisanal bakery is six bucks, eight bucks. It's a lot of money. And there are a whole lot of people in the world who still have to eat crap bread because that's all they can afford. And so the next wave that I'm hoping for with respect to bread development or bread made from real food is how do we make it more just and equitable and inclusive? And, and I belong to a group called um, Bakers Against Racism, which started as a sort of a fundraising group. And we've, we've moved on to Baking for Ukraine as, as an example, um, a, a, as a way of thinking about not just our survival, but the survival of, of humans. That I would like to argue that you know real bread if it's done right, is about community. It's about caring for one another. Um, it's about more than just calories and, and survival. It's there's, there's something religious, right, about making bread. 
Um, it's meant to be shared, even if it's not great. Uh, it's meant to be shared, and I, I just love this. This is um, this says a lot of things. This is my, as I said at the beginning, my 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 secret weapon. This is Allegheny College's defensive line learning how to make bread on their football team, uh, which says a lot about the record of Allegheny's football team. Um, they're not as big as they could be, but the pride of these guys in their first year of college of learning how to make their own bread. I mean, they have not forgotten that. And that has sort of changed what they think about how the world might be. And so with that, um, I think, yeah, 6,000 years, we've gotten to the end. Bon appetit. And I am now available for as many questions as you want to ask or until we're too tired or too hungry to go on. And the rest story, read the book. But go ahead, Scott. Oh, yeah. Would you... Tell us about any, 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 a few things you could tell us about your book. Uh, uh, what uh, the book, um, I, I heard it was really good. Uh, <laughs> so that, no, it, the book is, uh, it, it's, uh, it's part the, the story of, of the history of sourdough bread, but the, the, it's also a mystery story, which is I, um, I started baking sourdough bread when somebody gave me a sourdough starter 30 something years ago. And I, one day after 20 something years, uh, I looked at my starter and I'd been keeping this living ecosystem alive for 20 something years. And I realized this is older than my kids who are teenagers. Like they could eat a loaf of bread by themselves, just, you know, as teenagers can. And I wanted to know like, well, how old is my bread? If it's older than my kids, like it's older than my house plants, it's older than my phone or my washing machine, my refrigerator, like how old is this thing? And I, I called the people who um, gave it to me back in 1988 and asked them, and I started on this path of seeing if I could figure out how old my particular starter was, and if it mattered. Is it like a fine wine where an old starter has a certain kind of terroir? You know, could anyway? I trace my starter at least as far back as the gold rush in Cripple Creek, Colorado, in 1893. Um, and and I, I challenge any of you to to think about like who has anything you own that's that old. And if you do, it's an heirloom from your grandmother, you know, it's a set of earrings or something from your grandmother, but it's not alive. Somebody has kept this thing alive and passed it along from person to person to person. And so that's, uh, the, the story is, is about what does sourdough mean to us? How do I know if my sourdough is old? What makes a good sourdough? And, and, and why is it that we've forsaken sourdough for eating crap bread? Um, you know, with two pieces of bologna in between it and calling it lunch. All right, let's try another question. Okay, Um, I mentioned that I had the honor of testing recipes for modernist modernist published uh, cuisines bread book. And it was like, I think it weighs 50 pounds. There's several books in this. Oh, it's amazing. It costs 750 bucks, it's crazy. Yeah, at least I got a free, free. You got the whole set. Good for you. Yeah, yeah I had to have somebody help me carry it up from the receiving room, but it it's amazing, and I'm credited in there for the for the failing work that I did. But uh, 
<laughs> I my I had to make one of the recipes they gave me to test was sourdough bread. Yeah. And I couldn't make the starter. And I called our wonderful, famous mutual friend, Peter Reinhardt, to say, I'm supposed to test. Peter got me connected with modernist cuisine. And I said, I can't make the starter. I put it in the bread and it gets like silly putty. And I said, I, I just threw yeast in finally to make it work. And the bread was some most delicious bread I've ever eaten, but it's not kosher. I mean, it, it isn't what they wanted. What should I do? And I tried it again and it failed. And I tried it again. I called him. He said, why don't you go to a bakery and ask them if they will sell you some of their starter? I said, well, I can't quite do that. But with, so anyway, is is making starter from scratch that hard or what? what? No, no, I don't know what you're doing wrong, but I could. <laughs> I'm doing actually anybody. Um, I don't know if you can give it out or I can put it up in the chat. I can give you my email or you can Google me. If you Google Eric Palant, you'll come up with me. And my my email is um, I'll, I'll put it in the chat. Uh, it goes. Uh, never mind. Um, I followed Peter's instructions. Yeah, too. no, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of workshops where I'm going to show people online how to make your own starter. I just did it actually with a bookshop in Chicago uh, last winter. And I don't know, 90% of people were able to grow starter and within 10 days make their first sourdough bread. So I've got the directions. I can send it to you. Or if you want, I can, I, if you look me up and Google me and you get my website. Um, I can mail you my Cripple Creek starter and it's dried in a form of suspended animation. And whenever you get to it, um, you can bring my Cripple Creek starter to life or I have a, a, a Keystone starter, a Meadville, Pennsylvania starter from 1990, which is this white starter, which has a really mild, beautiful taste. And I have a starter from the old Soviet Union, a rice starter from 1960 that I'm also keeping alive. So I can send you these and you could bring them back to life uh, whenever you want. And I'll send you the directions and, and all that. And Scott, if you want to try it, we can, we can try it. I, I know I can do it. Thank I know you. you can do it. I hope so. But best, some of the best bread I've ever eaten made incorrectly, but I tried, yeah. but anyway, I'll turn it over to Kathy now who will go through the uh, chat questions and relay them to you. Thank you so much. Yep. We actually have a rather theological conversation going from the very start, but I think we'll come back to that at the end. We'll just get the quick ones done. How's that? Let's hope um, they're Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So uh, Peter inquired, anyone ever baked bread on a stick? I was told in Central Europe, some traditions wrap dough around a stick and cook it over an open fire. My friend baked a pizza flatbread this way in Germany in the 1980s. So this question, I love this question because it's what I love best about bread is, is you start with four ingredients, but depending on the village you live in or the valley you live in, uh, how you bring those four ingredients together and the temperature you cook them at and whether you'd cook them on a stick or in an oven or underground or in a volcano or whatever, if you braid it first or you stretch it first or you twirl it first, you put a hole in the middle first, um, that becomes the bread of your people. And and uh, I, I have used the making of sourdough bread and, and the discovery of bread to, to learn about cultures all over the world. And so if you go to Iran, uh, uh, 
in every village, there's a different kind of bread because of this. And so I am sure there's somebody who's cooking bread on a stick and I'm sure it's delicious, right? How could dough over an open flame not end up being delicious? Okay, so Penelope said, why sourdough? Did anyone by chance try to buy yeast in any form early in the pandemic? So that was part of why sourdough went off is because yeast was in short supply, right? And so ostensibly people were worried about starting to death because they couldn't get yeast. And so if you had a sourdough, you could grow it forever. Um, so that, that that was part of the impetus for why everybody was growing sourdough, but, but, you know, it was the yeast shortage, but I, I, I don't know. It, I mean, maybe may be, be, uh, oh, I probably am overextending myself and thinking that there's something authentic um, about decommercializing ourselves, detaching ourselves from a, a modern society where suddenly everything's trying to kill us. Um, if we step outside our door and going back to old ways, that uh, may have been at work in our heads when we decided, like, I'm going to try sourdough. But, yeah. Listen. Well, okay. So so it's this may be, end. I'm sorry, this may be related to the picture you showed, yeah. but what is the goo floating atop my starter? Is it time to start again? I think it's the one that you showed a little bit earlier. Right. So that's, I think, the most common uh, question that uh, the most common reason people throw away their starters is they see a black liquid or a colored liquid that accumulates on the on the top. So if the liquid is black or it's clear, that's called hooch, named after the Hoochinani Indians in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, ostensibly, again, according to myth, if you were a, a, a miner and you had been out panning for gold for weeks on end and really needed a fix of alcohol, you could drink that hooch and there was supposed to be enough alcohol in there. And there might be as much as like a half a percent of alcohol uh, in the hooch, which is where the, the name comes from. Um, I have drunk hooch and it, well, it tastes like sourdough water. water. That's all it tastes like. Um, it's perfectly fine. You can cook it. You can pour it off. You can mix it in. It doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't affect the bread in any particular way. If your starter turns like pink or green or like colors that are really, or it smells like you want to throw up because you open the lid, <laughs> um, then, then I don't suggest you eat it. But in all other cases, it should be fine. But if it's obviously moldy, it's time to say goodbye. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If it's, and, and okay. again, and, and I'll send you the directions, right? You can make a, a new starter in a, about a week. Um, and as best I can tell, uh, the quality of a starter that's 10 days old is not any better or worse than a starter that's 100 years old. Because I've read where people created their own starter and they didn't really feel it was really rolling until it was about six months old. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my guess is part of it is they weren't really rolling until they'd been working with it for six months. That's very good. Uh, Jeffrey said, can I keep a sourdough starter active if I bake bread more than once a week, sometimes after two weeks, or do I need to tend to it every day? Um, he then commented, I was making a biga for a while using some fresh and freezing the rest to be used later. And I didn't find a noticeable difference in flavor what might have been the reason? Okay. So there are two questions there. Yeah. 
and again, if we if you come to one of my workshops on bread, I can send you a couple of documents about how to start a starter. And then this wonderful document that my daughter wrote, which is essentially the first line of it is, so now you have a starter. Now what? <laughs> how often do you have to feed it? Like, what do I have to feed it? Like, do I have to take care of it? Like, do I have to get a babysitter and all that? And she's, uh, my daughter is great in that, that she's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, and and what I do like, and here's a story that's worth worth telling, is that starters um, and modernist cuisine lab uh, figured this out. They graphed the activity of the bacteria and yeast with respect to how often they get fed. And so a starter that gets fed every 24 hours will grow and grow and grow and grow for 23 hours. And at hour 23, they become like your cat who wants their meal. They are screaming, they're yelling, like, where's our food? Hey, where's our food, right? They are ready to go and they are timed to be fed after 24 hours, which is why bakers, professional bakers cannot stand Tuesdays because they take off on Monday and they feed their starter every day, Tuesday till Sunday. And Monday, they don't feed it. And on Tuesday, they've got angry, sluggish, hungry, not very personable starters. Okay, so if you have a starter that you feed every two weeks, it'll be ready in two weeks, but it is not going to be as fast and as active as a starter that's fed every day. And so it can go two, three, four weeks. Um, it'll be fine. But when you bring it out, I do suggest that you feed it sort of if you want it, if you're in a hurry, you feed it in the morning of day one and the evening of day one, the morning of day two, the evening of day two, and your starter will start to be ready for like, okay, every 12 hours, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And if you're just running your normal recipe and it's been a month or two months, it's going to be a slow, slow rise. The other one is starters can, if you dry them, the bacteria and yeast form little tiny cysts, which can survive not just for decades, but probably for thousands of years. And I thought somebody put in the, the, um, the story of uh, Seamus Blackley and his scraping yeast from, from the tombs in, in Egypt, right? That those cysts presumably are 4,000 years old. We don't know for sure because you can't really date the DNA. Um, but they will survive in a dried form, which the Egyptian desert certainly will do for a very, very long time. They'll, they'll survive in your refrigerator for a long time. The one place I think they don't survive is your freezer. And so if you've put your biga in the freezer, you may have killed whatever was in it. And it was in exactly the same state as the one that wasn't in the freezer, which is why they tasted the same. I'm making this up, but that's my understanding of the science. So how do we know about prehistory bread? Is it speculation or from artifacts? Um, it's, it's largely artifacts. It's, it's um, the, I, I just, I'm not an archeologist. And um, I think that's what I try to do in the book is like, I'm not an archeologist and I'm not a baker and I'm not a microbiologist, but I know enough about all three of them to be able to write about the history of bread in the way an archeologist couldn't or a microbiologist couldn't or a baker couldn't. I put all those things together. And so what I've learned about archeologists is that they can, they now have techniques for like taking microscopic grains of starch that are embedded in the stone smasher that was used to mash grains into the flour 
and look at the crystalline structure of the starches under scanning electron microscopes and determine what plants were used to make the flower and in what proportions. And so there is now a, a, a fair amount of ar archeological evidence that says, these are the flowers that were being used to make breads because we see them in the mortars and pestles. And we see them on the stones that um, were, were used where the flatbreads were baked. What we don't know is what the yeast and bacteria were because those got cooked. But we do know from what the, the, what the ingredients were that went into the recipes. So did the pandemic result in folks worldwide baking bread or was that just a U.S. phenomenon? No, it's like places you would never expect. Like, so there are now sourdough bakeries in like Malaysia and in Chile and in, in Colombia and in, in South Africa. Like everybody started baking sourdough bread. Like go figure. Oh, yeah. Um, Elizabeth said, I tried to buy yeast early in the pandemic and it was completely unavailable in my local store until right. at least six months into the pandemic. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so people worried, like if you're worried about survival, you're worried about not having yeast and not having enough bread. Like if I don't have yeast, then the bread bakers aren't going to have yeast. I'm going to die. It's not just that I'm going to get COVID and die. I'm going to starve to death here in my apartment all by myself. So what can I do to pass the time <laughs> is I'm going to make sourdough bread, right? And again, you could be like, you could be working on your sit-ups. You could be doing knitting because they're all about like, we got to do something while we wait for somebody to figure this out. Um, I, I think there's something affirming about, well, I mean, they're all good. I mean, right, right? exercise and knitting and dancing and things like that. They're all good. Um, doesn't yeast produce enzymes and evolve over time and become something else? Uh, so it's a yes and no. Um, so again, it's in the book. The ecology of sourdough starters is that we have these yeast and bacteria and they, they work with one another. But what they're really doing, what yeast and bacteria are doing is they are pre-digesting your food. That's what fermentation is. So if, uh, Catherine, you were saying you make sauerkraut, you are essentially pre-digesting food. And so there are some people who believe there are health benefits affiliated with having bacteria and yeast eat your food before you do, um, that they break down, they have enzymes that break down carbohydrates into simpler things. Yes, they evolve uh, quickly because the life expectancy of a bacteria or yeast could be like 20 minutes or a day, but it's not very long. And so you get multiple generations and all things that have multiple generations, their genes do change over time, which is a way of saying that even though my starter is 125, 130 years old and is the direct descendants, presumably, of a starter that was in the Rocky Mountains in 1893, um, <clears throat> It does have some progeny. It does have some relationship, but uh, in the same way that you do to uh, your relatives of many, many generations ago, right? Suddenly somebody shows up with red hair. Uh, who was it back there that had red hair? Um, you know, so it's still someplace in the gene pool, but it's, it's uh, uh, you are not exactly the, you know, a spitting image of your parents. 
So thank you. Uh, Tim says, thank you so much. I look forward to reading your book, but I would love to hear more about your ideas surrounding sourdough and sustainability. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So um, sneak preview, that's the next book. And, <laughs> and the, the book I'm just starting on now is called Loaf, um, how bread and maybe everything else is really made. And it, it's, it's going to be about how bread like commercial bread is made starting back you know, in the phosphorus mines in Western Sahara and the, 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 the fracking, the fracking wells that are generating the uh, natural gas that's used to make nitrogen fertilizer. And where do all those 30 other ingredients come from? And what is it we have to do to, to, to make the consumption of bread and therefore everything else much simpler and much safer for the planet. So that's coming. So Elizabeth said, I think it's more of a comment and maybe a response to somebody else, but she said the water and the temperature are really important when making bread starter. Yeah. So the the simple way to think about that is that, again, microscopic organisms are, you are feeding them flour. They are actually eating the flour and the water. And to keep them alive and happy, you need to give them fresh flour and fresh water. Right. And um, there's a fine line between bacteria and yeast fermenting things and turning them into something more delicious and rotting things and making them disgusting, slimy, awful things that you don't want to eat. And if you want to slow down bacteria and yeast, how do you do it? If you want to slowing down bacteria and yeast is the same as preserving food, like you can preserve a food by drying it out. So there's not enough moisture right? So a raisin will last a whole lot longer than a grape, right? A saltine cracker will last a whole lot longer than a moist bread. So if you take the water out of it, but the the simpler way to do it, it, rather than dehydrating, is to put it in the refrigerator. And so if you, you make bacteria and yeast cold, they will slow down. If you warm them up, they work much more quickly and they much more effectively. So um, making bread at this time of year is a very quick process compared to making bread in January um, because the atmosphere is warm and moist, which is what bacteria and yeast love. And so um, it could be, Scott, that your problem was your starter was like, you just didn't, it was too cold. It's a possibility uh, somebody inquired, can you talk more about dry starter? Yeah. So dry starter is just how, if you want to preserve a starter, you take your starter, which is just flour and water and, uh, smear it out on a piece of parchment paper and let it dry. And then it turns into a cracker. And once it's dry, the bacteria and yeast, as I just said, don't grow. They're just going to wait until the conditions are right, uh, namely that they get fresh flour and fresh water, and then they will take off. But until that happens, they will be doing nothing until the conditions improve. And so I, that's how I make starters that I put in the mail to people with the directions is I dry them out and I put them in a little plastic bag. And then I, um, I don't know, I keep them for as long as I need to keep them. And you can keep, you know, like I send it to you in the mail, um, and you're going on vacation in two weeks, then you wait until you come home because you're going to have to feed 
and water this thing. It's a living organism, like a houseplant or your children or a pet. It's somebody you're going to live with now for a very long time uh, <laughs> that you're going to have to take care of. Now, the good thing is it'll take care of you too. By the way, I have a, a just for an aside, but years ago I had the yeast guru from Red Star Yeast um, at a program. Mm -hmm. And he made an interesting comment at the time. The yeast for bread, that was like an incidental part of their market. But the mm -hmm. important, important one was the strains used for producing beer. Beer. And right. keeping those pure. Right. And so this goes to an earlier question, and I only know this because I went, as only the British would have, to something called the National Collection of Yeast Cultures, right? So in, in Norwich, England, they have 4,000 plus yeast cultures in liquid nitrogen. And the, the, the reason is because how many pubs are there in 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 Great Britain. And those pubs depend upon the reliability of their beers being good uh, year in and year out. And what they found is that, as we talked about earlier, the, the over the course of a year or two or three, the yeast multiplying in their vats um, will start to have a genetic drift uh, just from natural evolution, they'll go in a different direction and the beer won't taste the same. And so this brewery in wherever it is in Newcastle writes back to the national collection of yeast cultures and said, can you give me back a sample of my original yeast and I'll grow it back up and I'll pay you for the privilege of your freezing my starter or my yeast until I need it again in two or three years. I'm happy to say that my Cripple Creek starter is one of the 4,000 that's in their little liquid nitrogens. That's cool. I, I, if you don't mind, I do have one more question related to yeast. Because now there's these products where, you know, it's already sourdough. It's in a dried form and you can pour it into your bread. I haven't used it yet. I have several of them. Have you used them? And what was your opinion of those? So this is, all right, let's, let's talk marketing, right? Um, anybody who's in the bread industry, and we're talking like the big, big bread producers can see that sourdough is increasing year over year in terms of sales. And so what, what, what the big bread producers are doing is they're not just growing swimming pools of yeast that they're, I mean, the quantities of yeast that's being grown for commercial bread factories is one thing. They're now growing swimming pools of sourdough starters. And then here's what they're doing to make your little product. They're then taking that sourdough starter, squishing the water out of it and baking it, cooking it till it's a dry powder. What happened when they cooked it? They killed everything in there. Okay. There is no living starter. There are no living bacteria. There are no living yeast in there. That powder is originally was a sourdough starter and they can add that powder to your bread. And it's now one of that list of 35 ingredients and they can call it sourdough bread. And we can argue about whether it really is or not. I can tell you that there's something called the real bread campaign in Great Britain, which is up in arms over industries selling sourdough bread made with sourdough powder rather than sourdough starter. And I think you can probably grasp what my take on, on, 
on it is. Fascinating. Because I, I keep getting samples and stuff, but I haven't tried it and I wasn't sure what to do. Yeah, it I'll will give change it a shot anyway just for the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll change the flavor. Like, but it's, you know, you could add garlic powder, it would change the flavor too, but it's their equivalent. Interesting. Um, Chef Laura said, I think there is a lot of truth to that interpretation. I'm sorry, this is probably going back to something else. We de-industrialized in terms of work, school, going out, etc., and so returned to old ways for sure. I Probably this was making bread during the pandemic. Pandemic, right. You need to tend to it daily unless you store it in the fridge between bakes. Cold right. temperature slows your sourdough down. Right. So you, as Chef Laura does, I, I mean, she's tending to it daily because she's a chef. Right. And most of us can't eat that much bread, which is why I use the refrigerator. Right. I, you know, if I were making bread every day, then you want to feed it every day. But if you're making bread once a week, then I'm putting it in the refrigerator and taking it out on Saturday morning and waking it up and saying, let's get going. So that on Sunday morning, I can go ahead and. So um, I feed mine one time a week and bake from it whenever I feel like it. Yeah, that works. And I, and I know there's even like little recipe booklets, like all the things you could do with the starter you had to pour away. Oh, uh, like, right, right. Well, so that's the thing about if you if you start to grow your own starter, uh, uh, if you make your own starter and then start to follow these recipes where they say like use 16 grams of starter and nine grams of salt and uh, 175 grams of water and so forth, you will inevitably have some excess starter because it's, it's, you can't really grow 25 grams of starter. So you have this excess. And the thing I've noticed about all of us who make sourdough bread is it's impossible to throw away a starter that you've grown. I mean, it just, it's your baby, right? Right. And so, you, it, it, you know, it's hard enough for me to thin plants after I planted them in my garden. And I know that like I planted way too many radishes and I got to pull out a bunch of them, but I like, I'm not going to murder those little babies that I planted myself. So I'm not going to go there. And the same is true with sourdough starter. And so there are all these recipes for you've got extra starter. Here's what you can do with it. Right. Throw it in your brownies, you know, throw it in your breakfast cereal, You're like do it's something waffles. with waffles. Right. And they're all good. They're all, they're all, they're all fine. But that, in some ways that that's the discard recipes that I keep coming across and I get it. I understand why that is. Sure. Well, Eric, this is Scott, excuse me for interrupting. Uh, you did show a picture of Chad Robertson from Tartine Bakery in San Francisco. I had a question about that. Um, I attended an I, uh, International Association of Culinary Professionals Conference uh, some years ago in San Francisco, and I was sitting with Peter Reinhardt again, and Chad Robertson was there, and he was he passing around samples of his bread. Also, the baker for Alice Waters was there, Acme Baking or something. I have never eaten bread like that in my life. I thought, but what do I know about bread? And I asked Peter, the great teacher and expert, I said, this is the best bread I've ever eaten, Peter, but what do you think? And Chad Robertson's bread and the other ones too, he said, this is the best bread I have ever eaten in the United States. So I, I, I just wonder, I've never eaten bread like that. It could, I could have been eating a wonderful steak. Each piece was so satisfying. Do you know what his secret is? I mean, this is. Yeah, you know, I, I had the same experience. I stood in line outside of Chad Robertson's Tartine Bakery in San Francisco once. Only we did go to the bakery right after that, too. So and I got I thought, a double dose. All right. What you know, like how like, OK, this guy has this reputation. You know, everybody knows Chad Robertson. 
I'm a cynical guy to begin with. You know, I'm standing online. He makes 240 handmade loaves a day or something like that. And so I bought his Emmer bread from Ancient Grains, and it was the best bread I have ever had in my life. It was the best, right? And so, uh, you know, it's part, he's using original grains and original starters, but he's an artist. He's a, he's a real, he's a real, you know, you know, there are people who just excel in their ability to speak to the dough and have the dough speak to them. And, and, and as there are in all fields, the guy's amazing. He deserves it basically in my opinion. But as we said at the beginning, I'm an amateur. So an experienced amateur. Is that what I said? No, no. I'm saying you said you're an amateur. I said, you're an experienced amateur. All right. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Jeffrey, in his defense, said putting the biga into the freezer was suggested by a well-known bread book. So just right. just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, right. Chef Laura said, were there any other similar food trends of the pandemic, like maybe brewing beer? I just talked to somebody who said, just yesterday, who said in France, they made banana bread. Like everybody made banana bread when they went into lockdown. So that was the first I'd heard of that. So I don't know if it's valid, you know, or if it's just Jennifer's friends. Um, but so, so there may, there, there may well have been, but it was a, it was a phenomenon. Sourdough bread. It was just like, and, and everybody sort of came to it spontaneously. And then of course, anybody who's made sourdough bread and I'll chef Laura, if you're one of these knows that sourdough bread doesn't really exist. You know, it doesn't come into its full fruit. Like the last part of any recipe is it doesn't exist until it's on Instagram. <laughs> right. And, 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 and so there was that like we're on COVID and I can't see you in person, but I made this bread and it's going on Instagram. So then hit social media and it was, it was, it was all over the place. Right. And if you go look up hashtag sourdough now or whatever, you'll be overwhelmed. <laughs> Um, Sherry said, I keep my starter in the fridge between baking bread once or twice a week, and I feed it on an as-needed basis so it does not grow to uncontrollable amounts. And the (laughs) breads are delicious. No need to baby the starter. You can keep it in the fridge for several weeks between feeding, and it does okay. That's my kind of cook. I agree completely. I think people get too up too compulsive about it. You don't have to be. Now, if you're a professional, you do have to be. But but for those of us who are amateurs or experienced amateurs, according to Scott, um, you can you can be a lot looser about it. Uh, Lisa said, wondering about these starters you have from around the world. Is there a terroir of sourdough, a taste difference from local bacteria? So that is that is the question and I spent again I, that's part of the book was to, to does it matter um, what you know what's in this and I've had the the so, so let me back up so the difference between yeast and a sourdough starter yeast is one species commercial yeast so red star or or Fleischmann's is one species is Fleischmann's it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the genus and species and it has been selected like plant breeders have selected to be uh, super strong and super fast and, and inflate bread so quickly that um, in an hour, right? 
you know, this total reliability with, with commercial yeast, because this one thing has been selected, the, the way modern corn is selected to grow to be nine feet tall in a season and have all of the ears at exactly the height for the combine to harvest them, right? It is as far away from sourdough, which has maybe 10 species of yeast and a dozen species of bacteria in it. Commercial yeast has no bacteria, which is why it has no flavor. It just makes air. It doesn't have real taste to it. But those bacteria and yeast, those can be a sort of a random selection of who's in your house or who's in the place where the starter got made. And so it's like old-fashioned agriculture, where on a farm, you had those were your oat field, and that was your hay field, and that was the grazing field for the cows. And this is where we're growing some vegetables, and this is the maple syrup stand and so forth. And so you had all this stuff growing at one time. You didn't have one one hybrid version of, of one particular product like we do now in agriculture. So that's the difference between yeast and, and sourdough. And then the question is, does the collection of yeast in my Cripple Creek starter have a different flavor than the collection of yeast and bacteria in my Russian rye or the one I made from my backyard in Meadville? And the answer is yes. Um, I can taste the difference and it has been consistent um, like for 30 years. They, they, I can, I can tell this is made from my, my starter. Um, and I, I even tracked down, I gave a sample of my Cripple Creek starter to somebody who took it to Mexico and then to China and then to Ecuador and then to Germany. And I caught up with her and I tasted it. And it tastes exactly the same. Right. So there is a kind of continuity that can happen, but there's also a kind of change that also can happen. And the question is, does it matter? And it turns out nobody knows because to do the experiment, to do the experiment of does this keep its flavor when I give you a sample of my starter, I could mail Cripple Creek starter to the 50 people on this Zoom call. You would all make breads from it. And I would have to do the DNA analysis when I sent it out. And I have to do it tomorrow and I have to do it in a week and I have to do it in a year, right? For 50 of you, nobody can afford that. Nobody's going to do it. So we don't really know that each one of you, you have different pets in your house, you have different house plants in your house, you have different schmutz growing around in your kitchen, right? None of us work in sterile conditions. Right? So this new bacteria and yeast coming all the time, does it change? It's hard to say. What doesn't change, and I think the appeal of an old starter, is the story. I can give you my Cripple Creek starter, and you now have the story that comes with it. Is it worth anything? No more than um, you know the earrings from your grandmother or your great-grandmother. Are they more valuable because, right? No, it's made from the same gold or whatever, but because it came from somebody you cared about and it has a story associated with it, it has a kind of meaning to you, but it doesn't make it any better. Um, I feel you probably just answered this, but I'm going to ask the question just in case you see there's a subtlety that I missed. Okay. But someone asked if starters from different places make different flavored bread. And yes. he, sort of, he would like to hear an answer to this. <laughs> yes, there's the answer. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, Does it matter? Does it matter? Who knows? Um, Chef Laura, once more, some European countries like France and Italy regulate what can be called sourdough 
based on the amount of commercial yeast included in it. And she suggests, sounds like we need that here. And in England. In England, they don't regulate it either. So again, you can you can call something sourdough bread in England. And I think in the United States, right, I'm sure in the United States, nobody would dare to regulate what we call anything. And you, did I say that? Um, <laughs> uh, but no, right. So France, France and Italy, they care about their bread. This is like really, really important. Um, and in England and the United States, we care about profit and uh, and about corporations. And and so you can sprinkle sourdough powder over the top of uh, of a thousand loaves of bread and call them sourdough bread. And she's, I think, talking about uh, what sourdough. She goes, I disagree. I think it exists. It doesn't exist until it's in my belly rather than on Instagram. And yes, I bake sourdough started teaching home cooks how to make it during the pandemic. Fair so enough. I have, uh, unless you want to touch the whole uh, religious aspect of Passover and bread and all sorts of things, uh, I do have one comment, you know, the colorful um, round things on the Wonder Bread package, that was inspired in the 1920s uh, from going to an, a uh, Lighter than air balloon festival. Huh. It Which, was in Indianapolis, in, around Indianapolis somewhere. And so the indication being that their bread was lighter than air too. Oh, very nice. I just thought it was a stylistic issue, but you made a, a simulation I had not made. That's really nice. No, I'm um, sure that's it, right? Right. What could sell Wonder Bread better than being lighter than air? Which is a way of saying, like, this doesn't taste like the bread you knew from the old country. Your parents or grandparents were immigrants from Europe, and they were eating heavy, dark breads. American bread was lighter than air, right? The this stuff that people were embarrassed about at another era, and now they're proud to have these homemade breads. But I also would like to talk about that awful product called Amish friendship bread. <laughs> <laughs> I was given that and I was a slave to that stupid thing for a while. It got to the point that um, I allowed it to commit suicide on the counter. Yeah. I just let it run and run and run until it faded away and I could legitimately throw it away, not feeling guilty. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a terrible thing to inflict on somebody. Better to give them the loaf than the starter. White flour versus whole wheat, if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I'll give you the scientific thought about it, which is that white flour has more gluten than per cup per gram. And so will rise higher and make a bread that is less dense, more balloon-like than a whole wheat bread. Um, for sure, there's more nutrients in whole wheat bread and, and uh, to my taste, more flavor. But the more, the greater the proportion of whole wheat in the bread, the denser the bread is going to be. Can you comment on starters for uh, yogurts? We Indians have used these forever. Right. So it's the same thing, right? So once you get into fermentation, um, you are, you have living pets who are microscopic. You can't see them. You have to care for them, keep their temperature 
you know, at a reasonable temperature, you have to give them food, you have to give them on a regular basis, fresh ingredients upon which to survive. And then because they're living ingredients, you can always use them. And this is what microbiologists refer to, to take a spoonful of this that has living microscopic organisms in there and use it to infect a new, in this case, milk, if you're making yogurt, um, you're using lactobacillus uh, bacteria, which are also very common bacteria in uh, sourdough starters. Uh, lactobacillus you'll find in both yogurts and breads. And so lactobacillus can produce sourdough breads that have a kind of creamy or milky or buttermilk flavor on a sourdough bread, but they also can produce acetic acid, which is vinegar. And so you can get some uh, sourdough breads that have a real bite and a real kick, a kind of vinegar acidic flavor to them. And the famous, the most famous sourdough bakery in some ways in, is the Boudin Bakery in San Francisco. If you go to the wharf, they churn out hundreds of millions of loaves of sourdough bread every year. And they, they have reportedly the oldest documented sourdough starter in North America from the gold rush of 1849. But if you go in there and they have a little museum and you can look down in their bakery and you can see that they have vinegar, that they're actually adding acetic acid to make sure that the people who are buying their bread have that kick of acid. So it's not a natural flavor. They're actually adding additional flavor to give it more punch, which I think is cheating. Um, but people love it. So there you have it. And somebody did comment that their yogurt jar hit the floor and they didn't want to use any of it because of the glass shards. And it took weeks of experimentation with store-bought yogurt to find another suitable starter. Right. Right. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Um, I know you've, we've been here for 90 minutes, which is quite a lot. And uh, I think uh, I will send you a copy of the chat. And I think people, you may want to use the three dots because there's that interesting article on the uh, early, what was it? There was an article, yes, on uh, um, a harvesting starter from an ancient Egyptian pottery, which I think you all probably will want to read. And by grabbing the um, that thing. Um, right. Yeah. So if you go look up Seamus Blackley, you'll see his experiment, um, which ostensibly is the oldest starter in, in the world, but it's hard to say for sure. I've just put my email um, uh, <laughs> Chef Laura, you're spot on. That's why I keep you keep dried starter around because you never know when yours is going to disappear. You're going to forget about it. It's just not going to be happy. So you, and again, it's not that you couldn't get another starter from somebody else, but it's yours. It's your baby. I get it. Well, I think we can finish with this statement from Lisa. Loved learning the origin of the word hooch. Yeah. And that you are advocating for good bread for all. Thank you for a wonderful talk. And I think, Scott, you could wrap things up. I want to wrap things up by saying that we, your talk gave it gave us a wonderful rise. So thank waiting you. for your pun, Scott. I wasn't <laughs> going to leave without a Scott pun. My I'm my puns are uh, 
sharp like a bagel and twice as crummy. So <laughs> thank you so much. But really, this would this did give us a rise, uh, punnily and reality-wise. Thank you so much. And My pleasure. I'm, Thanks for having me, Scott and Catherine. Thank you. We're all drooling. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Let's go eat. <laughs> yes. Right. And anybody that started a little bit late, um, there will be an edited, just little stuff, uh, version out probably tomorrow morning. Wow, you are so quick. you could enjoy it. Most of the edits are my flubs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and again, if you want to email me, I put my uh, email in the chat. If you want, um, I I can let you know when there's a series of workshops coming up where I'll show you how to make a starter and how to make a first spread. Um, or you, and if you don't crab it, you can send us an email in the, when whenever you wish. All right, we'll put you together. Thank you so much. All right, have a great night, all of you. Good night. Good night.